All right. Hey, great to be here this morning. Uh, what a privilege, really, to be a part of this service and to get a chance to share a little more deeply than I have probably in the past. Uh, just for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe Pent. My wife, Lori, um, and I were blessed with three kids. Our oldest is serving on staff with you guys here with the young people, and I've got two other kids who are up at Hume Lake right now, one on summer staff and the other one full-time staff cleaning toilets. It takes a special character to be willing to clean toilets for Jesus. She's doing that, and uh, actually her brother, my other son, is cleaning toilets right there with her. Just wish they'd come home and do that at home. (laughs) They don't. Um, Yeah, kind of a cool connection with this church, because I'm looking at the Allens, I'm looking at the Dilbecks. Of course, you guys know the Islands, the Deals, just tons of families here that I go way back with uh, in ministry, serving with them. So many of you guys know who I am from that era when I was a young man. And uh, yeah, neat. Bob and I also kind of exchanged different places where we've ministered. We're from the same church in Santa Barbara, California that was Trinity Baptist Church. It's now another church. He went and youth pastored at a church in Danville that I later went and youth pastored. And uh, when I left Ventura, I went to Danville and served under a guy named Ray Schwartz, who's this handsome man's dad. And uh, just on Wednesday, I got back from Costa Rica uh, where his dad is working with me now. And he's down there with interns and a couple of U.S. teams down there. We're running our mid-year camp season right now. Got the camp filled with kids. And I got a cool story about Ryan. You guys want to hear about it? It's really kind of cool. So uh, I actually had the privilege of marrying Nate and Louise Johnson. Nate and I worked on youth ministry together. And I got to marry these guys. And um, so in the reception at the Dilbeck's home... uh, This guy was three years old or so, walked up to a table full of young people, and uh, went up to one of them and said, pull my finger. Yeah, guys will have to come later for me to explain what that means, because it's not allowed on a Sunday morning in church. But that was a proud moment for me as a father. And that's also why I don't do adults. I do young people, because that kind of stuff is hilarious. And that's why I was cut out for youth ministry. I I can't be serious. I I have to have fun. And so this is part of my heritage. Oh, finger puller. (laughs) It's a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, Several years ago, uh, uh, my wife and I, who were youth pastors, now under uh, the senior pastor, Josiah's dad, Ray, uh, we were on the board of LAMA. This organization is just re- really just a, a ma-and-pa organization created by my folks, which is what places me in Santa Barbara. They came up to Santa Barbara to form LAMA, and I lived there for four years before returning back. And what we did when we went back is we formed a ministry aimed at reaching teenagers. And what we would do is we would go onto a high school campus, announce a camp. Who doesn't want to go to camp? Kids would go. And we'd do these camps and rent facilities all over the country. And all these kids, of course, you know, these were street, you know, just pagan kids, would come to faith in Christ. And we would go on to that campus after camp, and we would start a discipleship group on those campuses. That thing morphed over the years to 25 groups that met across the country. 
Um, and in the 25 years that we were doing that, I say we because I kind of grew up in that ministry, we reached and discipled 50,000 young people, most of whom were Catholic, who then after being discipled returned right back into the Catholic Church. And today, many of the priests that preach around the country, Catholic priests, are Christians. They came to faith through my folks' ministry. So this is, this is over the years, this thing morphs, and we're renting facilities all over the country, and we're starting to say, hey, there is no facility in Costa Rica, really, that meets what we would want as the requirements of, like, a really cool camp for kids. And at the time, again, I'm a youth pastor, and we decided in 1997 that the time was now. And the cool thing is we had no land, no money. Perfect. No land, no money, just, just a vision. And we're willing enough and stupid enough to believe God could do it. Because, you know, where, where he leads, he provides. And he always likes to do things with people willing to do them where at the end he gets all the credit. And so that's exactly what he chose. And we just, by faith, on this particular board meeting that we had actually just up the street here in Santa Barbara, uh, made the announcement, we're going to build a camp. Three board members stood up right there, and they said, nope, we quit. Then we knew we were on to something. Right? I mean, you know, basically God's taken everybody out of the way that's going to be any kind of a hindrance in what he wants to do. And at that point, too, when we make that announcement, my wife and I are looking at each other, and we're going, here it is. Here's the calling. We're going to go and lead this camp ministry. Never done camping, didn't study it in school. I mean, my job application was pathetic, as far as being, uh, you know, applicable for this job as a director of a camp. I would have applied at any camp. They would have looked at me and just thought I was joking. But that's what God used to bring us to that place. And, and over the two or three years after that, he just did miracle over miracle. We had a 650-acre piece of property donated with no strings attached to this ministry solely for the purpose of developing it as a Christian camp. And then the fundraising started, and people just started pouring, coming out of the woodwork. Uh, groups from the United States came and built our first facilities, and boom. In January of 2001, we inaugurated uh, the camp. My wife and I are now there. We'd been there for about uh, a year up to that point. We took our kids with us, of course, and, and started this ministry. And in January of 2001, we inaugurated the camp. Had a capacity for 150 kids, had a, a kind of a chapel, multi-purpose chapel dining room, a few girls' cabins, a few guys' cabins, and a gym and a small playing field. And that's what we started with. Had our first camp two weeks later, 60 kids from a Catholic church, and off we went. 1,700 kids in our first year of ministry, and we just finished our 18th year of ministry this January, and we've seen 150,000 kids come to camp. And what we calculate about anywhere is between 58 to 60,000 of those kids uh, came to know Christ for the first time at La Montaña. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say that because now you know knuckleheads did this, so God gets all the glory, right? We're, we're good with that? So we just kept, kept doing camp. And as we did more camp and kids just got wind of what La Montaña was doing, they just kept coming. We just kept growing. And today, uh, we actually run camp for about 12,000 kids a year. And we can run three separate uh, programs at once because we have three separate camps and 600 beds. And God has just done all that. And it's just it's fun to be along with, for the ride. But as you will hear from Nate and Mike, uh, and their families, uh, it isn't easy. 
It's, it's, it's hard work, and uh, the enemy is constantly trying to discourage us and tear us away from that which is most important, and that is to keep Jesus at the center of everything that we do. So I have a little thought that I just want to share with you guys this morning. It has a lot to do with where I'm at in my faith journey, and, and it has a lot, too, to do with uh, a trip that my wife will, were able to take in January. We went to Israel toured the promised land with teachers and preachers on a special tour aimed at getting them to say, wow, this is cool, I'm going to bring my church to it, and we just kind of tagged along. And it was life-changing. To be in the places where the Bible happened, to walk along the uh, Sea of Galilee, to be at the Dead Sea, see where Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years and came in in the region of Jericho, and then make our way over through the land, ending up in Jerusalem, visiting that Temple Mount, being where today's Jews pray at the only leftover visible part of the temple left, and that's the western wall, and just totally breaking down at that moment, just a God moment, only to then descend into the below in some excavations where they're continuing to reveal the rest of the western wall, that which you can't see with the human eye, but just finding over and over again affirmations of the Bible that you and I today have in our hands. It just... Phenomenal. Changed my life. So, since then, I've been thinking a lot about death. Not dying. I'm not staring down a barrel every day trying to figure out if it's worth actually living today or not. But I have. I've thought a lot about death. And let me explain what kind of death I'm thinking about because you guys are in for a treat. Mike's coming up after me and I want to get him, get him up here as soon as possible. But I do want to share just part of my journey. And I'll read a few verses, then I got a, a, a quote from a book that I'm reading right now, but I'll, I'll just let me read just a few verses. The first one is in Philippians, Paul's writing, of course. And in verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And the verse everyone's familiar with, verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. That's Paul. Here Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, he says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he says it again in Matthew 10, 38, where he says, um, and anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The journey of building a, a ministry like La Montaña has been a, a journey of dying. It, at different phases, because as you can imagine, you know, the, the beginning was pretty humble, pretty small. The Lord just started doing amazing things. We were growing in ways that we had never imagined possible in such a short amount of time. And it's easy to get kind of prideful. It's easy to think that you're really something, you know, and, and think, wow, I'm really part of something kind of cool. And, and just to know that we're a, a camp that God is using so powerfully. Over the time, he has over and over again taken to these places where we have been forced to face those realities and die to those things. And that's why I've been thinking about death. You go to Israel, you go to the place where Jesus lived and then died, it tends to have a pretty huge impact on you. So as I've internalized that, I'm realizing that everything that, that, that the Lord has done, 
up to this point has been all about me dying so that he can live. All about me stepping to the side so he could do his stuff. Because he's the only one that gets the glory. Amen? I mean, if we take the glory, it's, it's bad stuff. It doesn't work. But if he gets the glory, it's awesome. So that brings us to a place where we're at right now where we feel that the Lord is leading us now to take what he's done at La Montaña, Costa Rica, and expand it all over Latin America. I have no idea how that's going to happen, but I didn't have any idea when we were going to build this crazy thing in the first place, so I guess we'll do it. But he gets the glory. I'm I'm reading a book, too. It's uh, called The Radical Cross by A.W. Tozer. Any guys ever read any of A.W. Tozer's stuff? Not the kind of stuff you want to read if you're kind of uh, happy with just a ho-hum life. He kind of drags you just takes you out of complacency and forces you to take a radical new view of the faith. Well, anyways, this is definitely one of those books, and I just take an excerpt out of a chapter that he wrote in that book, and it says the following, just a few quotes from it. Let me die, lest I die. Only let me see thy face. That was the prayer of St. Augustine. Did you catch that? Let me die lest I die. Two kinds of death, right? Let me die because I don't really want to die. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a paradigm. He goes on to say, in Augustine, no, to Augustine, the sight of God inwardly enjoyed was life itself, and anything less than that was death. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, taken from Galatians 2.20. And then he says, and this is the clincher, and I'll leave you with this. He says, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Ouch. But good. So I don't know where the Lord has you. I was sitting back in the back with some superstar dads that are all holding these kids. Guys, I wouldn't challenge to an arm wrestling contest on my best day. That's the best ministry right there. And the Lord has you in Ventura. Worship leaders serving in a rescue uh, ministry. Ministries all over the place. But as you continue on the throne, if if that's where you're at, then you don't let him take control, and put himself on the throne. So join me, fellow pilgrims. Let's climb up onto our cross and let's let him be on the throne. Thanks. Appreciate you guys. Thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, it's amazing. You know, like you see, talked about the, the people that just get up and walk out of the meeting. It just it blows your mind. It's just, and to see what God does, it's, it's crazy. Um, now we get the opportunity to hear from Mike. Uh, I'll share a, one quick little story that Mike shared uh, with us on one of the trips I was there one time was the very first night that they went to after they purchased the care center. And there's a lot, there's a long story. There's a whole lot that comes to it. But anyways, the night that they pulled into the care center, everything they owned was in a trailer pulled behind their car and whatever. And they got up the next morning and it was gone. Somebody had taken and stole everything they owned. So welcome to Hillbrow, right, Mike? Yeah, and uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of 
of of what goes on and where they're at. They're in a they're in South Africa in, in a community called Hillbrow, which is a suburb of Johannesburg. And uh, come on up, Mike, and I'll just get out of the way and let you tell the rest of the story. And it's just it's amazing the things that God's doing in his life. Thanks, Court. Thanks for that warm welcome. Hi, guys. Great to be with you. Enjoy the worship, the praise, the testimonies, and just uh, just being blessed with what God is doing all over the world and hearing wonderful stories of how God is using ordinary people to do extraordinary work. Uh, my wife is with me, Renu, and uh, we've come all the way from Johannesburg, South Africa. Just a little bit of my background, my walk with the Lord started almost 50 years ago. Uh, I was converted out of Hinduism. I always refer to my two conversions. First of all, I was converted out of Hinduism into Jehovah's Witnesses. And then I discovered that I was still lost when a missionary came to share the gospel with me. And then my second conversion was discovering the light that is in Christ. At that time, we were living in apartheid, South Africa, and I remember uh, they always say that, be careful what you pray for. Your prayers may be answered. I wanted to follow the God of the Bible. A Bible was given to my sister in the school. She brought it home. I read that Bible, and I was really deeply moved. I wanted to know this creator God. And I remember praying, I says, God, can I follow you and not be a Christian? Because I didn't want to be associated with Jesus Christ living in apartheid South Africa. If you know the history, you know we were oppressed under the white uh, uh, group of people. And we saw Jesus as a white man's God. And I wanted to be as far away from Jesus as possible. And... Uh, there was a group of Jehovah's Witnesses doing the rounds, and their teaching actually attracted me. Because they said, we're not Christians, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't follow Jesus, we follow Jehovah God. And for the next four years I was with them, until a missionary knocked at my door and shared the gospel with me, and he asked me one question. He says, Mike, you have been a Jehovah's Witnesses for four years, you have read the Bible, are you sure that your sins are forgiven? And I said, nobody can be sure. And then he read to me 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Spirit of God began to move like a little child. He led me word to word through that verse and says, if you do this, this is what God's going to do. And 26th of October, 1975, 6.30 p.m., my wife and I went down on our knees and accepted the Lord as our Savior. Immediately I was moved with the darkness that the Hindus were in. I went to Bible college and studied for a few years and began to plant a church among the Indian community. In Durban, which is a coastal city in South Africa, there's a large population of Indians. And God began to move and we saw many, many conversions and uh, we did a lot of door-to-door work. I pitched up tents. I used to see Billy Graham's crusade and I started to copy him in a very, very small way. And many, many people came to know the Lord. And I worked there for about 15 years until I had a call to move to a church in Johannesburg, which was almost 400 miles away. At that time, apartheid was dismantled and... Uh, 
this church in Hilbra began to welcome all kinds of people, people of different color, and lots of people from all over Africa were moving into this church. And I became a pastor there in 1995. And as Scott said, you know, we call it Hellbrow. It's one of the most densely populated square miles on earth and uh, a very, very violent city. My first, before I preached my first sermon, I did my first funeral. On New Year's Eve, they have a wonderful way of celebrating New Year's. There's a lot, lots and lots of high-rise buildings. And usually on New Year's Eve, people will throw in, throw down old refrigerators, or stoves, and one young man was hurt with a brick that somebody threw down. His skull was cracked, he died. And on Saturday was my first funeral, and the next day, Sunday, was my first sermon. But there also, I was introduced to street life. Children living on the street. Five of them froze to death on that year. And God challenged me. And God said to me, you know, uh, your philosophy of ministry needs to be changed. You cannot do what you did in Durban. You need to reach out to these children. You need to discover what the needs are and share the gospel in practical ways to them. And that's what we began to do. We started a soup kitchen on, on Sunday, and many of them came, children and adults, and many of them received the Lord. But after a year, we felt that we were not making much progress, because kids were actually living on the streets. They actually owned sections of the street. Another funeral I did was of a 13-year-old boy who stabbed another 13-year-old boy because he didn't allow him to sniff his glue. And uh, we began to pray and say, Lord, give us a place where I can have these kids 724. And a few years later, the Lord answered our prayer. There was a 90-room building for sale, and we purchased that and moved into that building the 1st of July 2000. And we have been there for 18 years now. The Lord has done amazing things. Since then, many, many young people, teenagers, children have come, have graduated, have come to know the Lord and moved out of the center and now able to take care of their lives and be productive citizens in South Africa. Just imagine for a moment that you are a four-year-old kid and you have no single living relative on earth that you can call your own. The only person that you had was your mom, who died while you were three years old of age-related illness. You don't even realize that you are HIV positive and you may not live long enough to see your 10th birthday. What kind of future would you have if you ever had a future? Now that's the story of many of the children that come to the center. The center is the only home for several of them. Some of them come to us as young as three months old. Destitute, hopeless, hungry, hurting, helpless, homeless. And by the grace of God, when I take in a kid, we say to the child, we will take care of you until you are able to take care of yourself. Sometimes it's 18 years, sometimes it's longer. We have some children that have never been to school and come to us at the age of 10 
and they begin primary school at that age. We have a girl who is just over 20 years old and in a in a last year at high school. Those are some of the challenges that they face. Uh, because of the background of the kids, there is no quick fix solution to their problems. As powerful as the gospel is, the gospel even doesn't provide overnight solution. They have the scars, the trials, the testings that they always go through. And uh, with a staff of 20, we actually demonstrate the love of Jesus in practical ways to them. And by the grace of God, we see transformation taking place gradually in their lives. And that's the greatest joy of seeing them come through all the hurts, the pain, the suffering that they've been through, and to understand that there is a God who loves them. How many times we have had children come to us and say, you know, I I can't understand. If God loves me, why will he take my mom away? Why am I HIV positive? And these are the questions that we deal daily with. And our aim and our objective is to provide holistic care. In other words, to meet the total needs of the child. Education, physical, mental, psychological, and every other area. But above all, to share the love of Jesus with them. To show them that Jesus loves them. And as I said over the years, several have come out and graduated knowing the Lord Jesus as the personal Savior. Some of them are involved in the center ministry. Others are involved in local churches. And that's the joy and the delight that we get when we see these children coming through. Now, there are several things you can pray for. First of all, I just want to say how thankful we are to CBC Church. You have been supporting us for many, many, many years. And I want to say that without your help, we would not be where we are today. So thank you so much for your support. I trust that our partnership would continue uh, for a long, long time. You can pray for the children. Please pray that God would work in their hearts. You know, as teenagers, as little children, they have the challenges that they face like every other ordinary child. Pray that the Lord would work. The gospel seed will be sown in their lives at an early age. You know, someone once said, when an adult is saved, a soul is saved. When a child is saved, a soul plus a whole life is saved. And that's what we'd like to do. We'd like these kids to come to know the Lord at an early age. The first thing I asked myself when I became a Christian at the age of 25, why now, Lord, after I wasted my teenage years? And this is what we do, try and help them to come to know the Lord. So please continue to pray. We have 70 children now. And secondly, we have reached capacity in the building where we are. If I want to, overnight I could take in probably another 100 kids. The need is so great. In fact, there are over 5 million uh, homeless children and child-headed families in South Africa among a population of 70 million. So the need is great. We want to give our kids quality care. So we think that 70 is enough, but that does not mean that ministry stops. 
The saddest part is to say to children that we have no place for you. So we hope and we're trusting and praying that the Lord would lead us and we'll be able to purchase another place and then plant another orphanage. Some people plant churches. God has called me to plant orphanages. And we want to do that and just duplicate the ministry so you can pray uh, for us that the Lord will guide us, the resources will come as we trust in Him, and He will provide the resources to do what He's called us to do. Thirdly, we have a mini bus that transports children to school, and we want to replace that mini bus since it's giving us so much of mechanical problems, and pray that the Lord will provide resources to do that. And then, we always need volunteers. Short-term, long-term volunteers, you can come all by yourself, you can come with a group, do VBS, you can come with youths or leaders or whoever, we have accommodation right at the center, we'd love you to come over and spend time with us and then just see what, is God, what God is doing in the other side of the world. So we'd love you to come and join us and then just uh, experience God's goodness and grace and your life will never be the same again. And we've heard that over and over again. People going out on mission trips and God touches them and their lives will never be the same again and again. I just want to challenge you on that. I've been a pastor for almost 40 years. And my personal observation, I've preached at many churches, traveled a lot, and my personal observation is uh, people receive salvation And it's praise the Lord, hallelujah, I'm saved and full stop. And I believe God's plan and purpose is not complete until he wants to move you from salvation to service. Salvation is coming to Christ. Service is going out for Christ. It's interesting, all the gospels begin with come. And it ends with go. Salvation is coming out of darkness into God's light. Service is taking that light and going into God's darkness. Salvation is being transformed by the power of the gospel. Service is becoming agents of transformation. And my brothers and sisters, our two speakers, the worship leader and our brother here, Joe, has just hit the nail on the head. Challenging us to move from service to salvation. God is waiting. He wants us to do that. And I just pray that heart would be touched here and we would take the next step. Many, many years ago, I was speaking at a mission conference in South Africa. And at the end of that conference, as I got into my car, a young lady asked for a lift. And I said, a hop in. And while driving on the way, she said to me, Mike, there was a wonderful challenge. I was speaking on the Great Commission, and I looked at her and said, what are you doing about it? She said, I'm praying for the Lord, that the Lord will call me. And I said, young lady, the Lord has called you 2,000 years ago, and is waiting for your response. After the month, she phoned me, and she said, Pastor Mike, I had sleepless nights. I've resigned from work. There's a group of people going to Kosovo. And at that time, the communist walls came tumbling down. And I'm joining this group. We're going to Kosovo. And this was in the mid-80s. And since then, she and a group have planted so many churches, built a Bible college, and are training pastors to preach the gospel. She responded to the call. 
The call has gone out. God is waiting for our response. May the Lord bless you. Thank you very much.